0: Our Father, as we have sung a prayer to you, we do ask that you would change our heart, and we know that one of the ways that you do that is through the Word of God, as we look into it, as we study it, as we apply it to our lives. And we pray that as we uh, look into a section of Scripture this morning that deals with the nation of Israel and their relationship with you, that you would change our hearts, that we would take the, the things that are exemplary and apply them to our lives, and to take those things that are uh, exemplary in a negative way, meaning we don't want to live like them and, uh, and apply that to our hearts also. Lord, we do pray that this would not just be an, an exercise in reading scripture and going away, but that we would uh, be changed as the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to affect the change in our lives to make us more like you. We pray that this would be accomplished because of Jesus Christ and through the power that he's given to us in our, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know that there are some times that we think that in our lives, if we just had this one item or if we just had this one accomplishment, that everything in our life would be complete. That that is all that we would need in order to satisfy our every longing. And I had an experience like that when I was a youngster, that there was this one toy that I wanted for Christmas. It was a popular toy at the time, now it's kind of laughable when you see the the high-tech things that we have today. But at that time, there was one toy I really wanted, and if I had that toy, my Christmas would be complete and my life would be complete. And that toy was Rock'em Sock'em Robots. <laughs> and, and I think those of you that are laughing may have, may have had one of those. Maybe even picked mine up from the garage sale when it, was, when it was put in there afterwards. But if I had this one toy, this one gift, then everything would be fine. And I kind of, like, obsessed about that as... as my time leading up to Christmas was, was getting there, and then Christmas morning, I was opening up present after present, and every present was something good, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted because it was this, this toy. And I went through all my presents that my mother had gotten for me, and at the end, I had this huge pile of wrapping paper and, and, and an obscenely large pile of gifts next to me. And my mom said, well, is, did you get everything you want? And I said, well, almost. See, I had all these great gifts, and I was just kind of like focusing on the one gift that I didn't have. I'm sure it never happened to any of you, but it, it did happen to me only once, though. It only happened to me that one time. So then, my mom pulls out from behind the couch or behind the chair this, this last box, about, you know, like this size. And I open it, and what do you think was the present in that last box? What do you think it was? It was Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And man my life was complete. I had everything I now wanted, and that lasted for about two weeks. And then I realized that there was another toy that was just coming out, and that if I had that toy, then my life would be complete, and I would be content. See, the, the problem is, okay, that's okay as a kid, but the problem is, we stay with that mentality as we go through life, into adolescence, and then into adulthood. And even as adults, don't we say, you know, if I only had... The, th- this is good, but I'm tired of this. Now, if I only had fill-in-the-blank, then I would be truly happy. Then I would be truly content. Well, that brings up the, the section of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning and the title of our sermon, which is... Uh, I'll give you part of, part of the title here. Fish, onions, and garlic, a recipe for... Now, there's probably a lot of good cooks here, and if I gave you fish, onions, and garlic, you can come up with something really creative and and tasty with that. But in this case, fish, onions, and garlic is really a recipe for grumbling. As we're going to find out in the section that we're going to study this morning, Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 through 23, and then we'll skip over to verses 31 through 35 and then a short jaunt in chapter 21, as we're going to see in, in these sections of Scripture that the children of Israel, far from being an example for us to follow by what they did, will provide for us an example to, to not follow because of what they did. So again, we'll look at two sections of Scripture. They, they are related, and, and you'll see the obvious relation ship they have to one another when we get there Numbers, the book of Numbers Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers fourth book of the Bible chapter 11 and then we'll, we'll skip over to, to chapter 21. As you're turning there let me give you the setting the background for the scripture of which we're about to read the people are going to be uh, the, the people have been brought out of Egypt for about one year to the point in scripture that we're going to be reading So they've experienced a wonderful deliverance from being slaves in Egypt to now being brought through their journey heading toward the land of promise. God has already provided miracle after miracle, getting them out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, providing that wonderful food in the wilderness that we'll be dealing with in in chapter 11 called manna. Water out of nowhere. He has provided everything they need for that time. They're journeying through a region of land that's called, in the Bible, the wilderness. Now, to us as Americans and as North Americans, when we think of wilderness, maybe we think of trees and rivers and pioneers cutting their way through and building log cabins. And and if any of the teens went on the wilderness weekend a couple weeks ago, you had to use a canoe and you were fishing and it was all outdoorsy. But when, when we think of wilderness, it doesn't quite correspond to what the Bible means when it uses the term wilderness. When the Bible uses the term wilderness, it's talking about a place, and it's talking about a school ground. One person has written this about the wilderness in the Bible. The wilderness will be a place where God's people will either deepen their trust in the power of their God to supply their needs, or doubt their God's abilities and resources wilderness will represent for Israel either possibilities or problems. And we're going to be talking a lot about Israel, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, the the Hebrews that were brought out of Egypt. But this is also going to represent what is true for us as uh, Americans living here in the 21st century. Because we have our times of wilderness, are times where God is bringing us through a place of testing, and we can either, like the children of Israel, deepen our trust in the power of God or doubt God's abilities to get us through it. It can either be a place of possibility or a place of problem. So the wilderness is not only a geographic area, but it's a spiritual reality. All of us have either been in the wilderness, I'll put that in quotes, we're either in the wilderness now, or we can expect to be That put in that place in the future. So even though we're talking about those people back then, the same situation very much applies to us people here and now. So as they're journeying through this land called the wilderness, it's not a land of trees and flowing rivers. It's a terrain that is very difficult to live in. Day after day after day, this is what you see. And I, I asked Willem before, are you going to the wilderness? And your answer is... Yes, you're going to the wilderness. If you're going, well, I should say, if you're going with Willem to the Holy Land, which also includes this special holy place called the wilderness, you'll see this. And the thing is, when you go there, how many days are you spending in the wilderness? One, a full day? One full day. Do you have air-conditioned buses? Air-conditioned buses. When you leave the wilderness, are you going to an air-conditioned hotel? Yeah, you're going to an air-conditioned hotel. So you're going, if you go with Willem to the Holy Land, you're going to visit the wilderness. The nice thing is, after you're done visiting the wilderness, you go back and you get to stay in your air-conditioned hotel and eat all kinds of nice foods and and everything is taken care of for you. So this is like a commercial for going there. It's not a commercial for getting away from Israel. It's a commercial for going there. But if you were part of that group of people that came out of Egypt, you didn't just get to visit the wilderness. You lived there. You didn't go go there in air-conditioned buses. You walked. And you got to stay in your tent, which was at that time not air conditioned. And every time the day ended, this is what you saw at the end of the day when you got up the next morning. And if you went somewhere, that's what you saw the next day, day after day, after day, after day. And it can begin to wear on you. It begins to strip away what you think is really important in life. Or it makes you yearn for something that you think is really important in life. So you have to picture yourself being here, you're in the middle of nowhere, it's not a tree-lined, river-flowing place, you're going to that, that's what God promised you, that's where you're going, is a place that's a a land flowing with milk and honey, but the wilderness is not a land flowing with milk and honey, it's a land of testing, and we're going to see what happened when Israel was being tested. Now we turn to, to chapter 11. I'm going to start reading with verse 4 from the, the New King James Version. Now, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, mm, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of delium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, and made cakes of it. And its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families every one at the door of his tent and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused Moses also was displeased so Moses said to the Lord why have you afflicted your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me did I conceive all these people did I beget them that you should say to me carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to our fathers Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I found favor in your sight. And do not let me see my wretchedness. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same spirit upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? And Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough meat for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Has, has the Lord's, Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether or not what I say will happen to you or not. And then skip over to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about three feet above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered about 60 bushels. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was roused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kirbuth HaTava, because there they buried the people who had yielded to cravings. The name of that place means the, the graves of craving, or the graves of greed. That took place one year after leaving Egypt. We have have to skip a little ahead. Ten chapters in the book of Numbers, but 38 years later, according to the chronology, and look at chapter 21. 38 years later means the next generation. So chapter 11 are the very people that came out of Egypt. They're the ones that saw the plagues, they're the ones that left with the, the dough on their shoulders and they had to leave so quickly the dough did not have time to rise. Chapter 11 is the first generation. Chapter 21 is the next generation, the second generation. These are the people that would be going in to possess the land. The first generation died off because of, of unbelief. So here's the second generation, and, and let's see what they learn from their parents. So now we start reading from verse four. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food. Well, that's not true. And no water. And that's not true either. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. This is generation two. This is who the Lord is going to build a new community with in the promised land. I'm going to save the the last last, uh, verses from that section until our conclusion. It's really discouraging, isn't it, to see generation one do this and then see generation two say the same thing. Moses must have said, this is like deja vu all over again. Didn't I hear this with the first group? And now he's hearing it yet again. So because of this, because of this, this incessant grumbling of the people, it's helpful for us to learn some instructions about grumbling and contentment from the lives of the children of Israel. Because really, we are not much different than they are. We may be sleeping in better conditions. We may be having a regular meal, a regular diet of more diverse food than they did. But really, the problems that they had, which led to their grumbling and their murmuring and their complaining, are the same things that happened to us. Because we're, we're all made out of the same cookie dough. There's no difference, really, in... Uh, in us whether we're children or adults in terms of our cravings nor in terms of Israelites or Americans in terms of our cravings. So as we consider what uh, what Israel's problem was and how we can avoid their problems we need to define what grumbling is and what grumbling is not. So first of all what grumbling is not. Grumbling is not groaning to God because of our problems, because of real pain that we're suffering. It says in, early in the book of Exodus that the children of Israel groaned to the Lord because of their bondage. And God answered that prayer. He answered their groaning because of pain. We're also going to find, we did see and we will find again, that God answered their grumbling. But he answers groaning in one way, and he answers grumbling in a completely different manner. He answered their groaning by delivering them. He answered their grumbling by judging them. Groaning is to have a continual mindset that always assumes the worst, even when you're living among the best. Never being content with what you have. Always wishing you had something more. Always complaining about what has been given to you. See, we we call some things constructive criticism when we're trying to to find a a good way of, of uh, of taking something that's bad or something that's wrong and turning it into something good. Grumbling takes something that is good and makes it into something that's detestable so that we can have a different thing. So grumbling is different from crying out or groaning. And we're going to look at three things in the story of Israel by way of example. We're going to look at the path to grumbling, what led them to that point. We're going to look at the problems of grumbling, why is it so wrong to, to grumble. We're, we're good at that as a society, we like to complain. and what kind of protection can we take against grumbling? What can we learn from Israel's example that will keep us from following the same path? So we'll find the path to grumbling, the problems of grumbling, and the protection against grumbling. So first of all, the path to grumbling. And it's going to begin, and I'd like you to turn back to Numbers chapter 11. It's going to begin with distorted perceptions. The first distorted perception Is a distortion of history. Look back again at what they say in chapter 11, verse 5. Here's the group that said, We remember the fish. We remember that we ate freely. It was given to us for free in Egypt. Oh, we remember the cucumbers. And the melons, oh, they were ripe. You thunk them, and they're ripe melons. And the onions, how they added so much flavor to our food, and and the garlic, which is, you you, you know, you put garlic in anything, and it makes it taste better. We remember all that. But what were they forgetting? They forgot that while they were in Egypt getting all this stuff for free, what were they forgetting about their, their time in Egypt? The whips and the slavery... And the brick making, and the baby killing, and all the other things that go along with being slaves. So they say, we remember all the food, but their distortion of history led them to forget that in those good old days, they weren't so good. They may have been old, but they weren't so good because they were in bondage. So they had a distorted view of what they thought was pleasant for them. So they remembered what they wanted to remember, and they forgot conveniently here what they wanted to forget. And constantly, in their history of going through the wilderness, in their testing, they said, we want to go back. We know it was slavery, but we want to go back. And what we'll find out in just a few moments is that that's a direct affront to what God had in store for them. So they had a distorted view of of history. They also have a distorted view of their present reality. They say... Our whole being is dried up, we're malnourished, we're, our strength is gone. Well, that wasn't really the case because God provided food for them every day. He provided what they needed every day. But they said, oh, there's, our appetite isn't even there, we can't continue. Well, when we're, when we're in the middle of grumbling, that's what it seems like because we can't even view reality properly because we're only complaining about what we don't have. So for Israel, they said, we're, we're done. Our soul is dry is what it literally means. And maybe they didn't intend it to be literal, but I think that I would have to say that their soul really was dry. And maybe we've gone through periods like that in our own lives where our soul is dry, not because God has failed to provide for us but our soul is dry because we fail to appreciate what God has already given to us and then they said this manna is in chapter 21 when we looked at that part this manna is worthless it means it's light it's not good for anything it doesn't even taste good well that's a contrast to the description that it gives in the verses that it tastes like a delicacy pastry prepared with oil God didn't just give them a tasteless thing. It's not like, you know, if you, if you remember the early days of the space program, they talk about the freeze-dried astronaut food. It wasn't supposed to be anything really good and it was just supposed to be nourishing. Well, God didn't provide freeze-dried astronaut food for them. He provided something that tastes good and he provided it regularly. It wasn't diverse, but it was everything they needed. Was it everything they wanted? No, what we're finding out is they wanted something different. It wasn't everything they wanted, but it was everything that they needed. And they also have a distortion of God's grace, that he provided this for them, and yet they say, skip back into verse 4, who's going to give us meat? In other words, I don't know that, I know God provided this manna for us, but I don't know if anyone can provide what we really want. Because even though God was gracious to them, they wanted more than what God was already providing. Let me show how that happens in this path to grumbling or how to despise your blessings. So first, something that's really extraordinary, providing manna for them, turned into something, take the extra out of it, and it turned into something ordinary. You know, imagine the, the first morning that God, <clears throat> that God provided manna for your people. You get up out of your tent, and in the morning, on the ground, is your food. You don't have to go very far to collect it. You go out your tent, collect a little bit of it, and then that's what you're going to use for that day. Did anyone here go camping, uh, do, do tent camping last week? How many tent campers are there? Okay, so you know what it was like. You get up early in the morning. As soon as you zip open the tent, instead of seeing dew on the ground, you have there's your food. God has provided it for you. You don't have to go out and grow it. You don't have to go out and harvest it. You don't have to grow, go out and, and thresh it. There it is for you. All you have to do is collect it and then make it whatever way you want. And it said in Numbers chapter 11, some people were making it into cakes and some were doing other things with it. So there was a little bit of variety in how you could make it, but it was there. And the first morning, it was probably extraordinary. Like you know, some, some kid gets up, opens the tent flap and says... Mom and dad, you won't believe what's on the ground. Oh, this stuff is great. You know, they may eat it raw or they may make it in something. This, this tastes like like creamy something. You know, it's really good. Day two. Mom, dad, it's, it's still here. Look, again, this morning we have some more of this. Day five. They open up the tent flap. Uh, hey, mom and dad, guess what? There's, there's more manna out here. Day 47. You open the tent flap, and what's there in the morning? manna again. Day 107, you open the tent flap, and out there is manna again. I, I think that the extraordinary part was starting to wane, and it was becoming ordinary. And then after that happens, the ordinary becomes expected. So now you open the tent flap, okay, there's the manna again. Open the tent flap the next morning. There's the manna again. And then you begin to expect God's blessing. See, when, when we get it once or twice, it's a gracious act of God, and we, we thrill about those things that He's provided. But then we become to expect it. And not just to expect God's blessing, but to expect that God owes it to us. Isn't it? Isn't that the case? Then instead of, instead of saying that I'm only receiving this because of God's gracious hand, now we receive it because God owes it. And then, after a while, the expected becomes distasteful. So now, the, instead of the kid opening the flap and saying, Mom, Dad, there's manna on, what, there's something on the ground. What is it? That's why they call it manna. You know, what is it? So now they're opening the flap, tent flap and saying, oh, It's manna. That's what I wanted meat. I'm tired of, of manna pancakes and manna... Burgers and manna stew and manna cakes and whatever. And then what happened with Israel, in chapter 11, they've had enough, and the, the thing that was distasteful them, is now resented. Oh, there's nothing around us but this stupid manna. It's worthless to us. We want meat. Tired of this. I remember that. Mmm, the garlic in Egypt. I want something different. And after a while, they all start saying it. It said it began with some people, and then it started to filter through. And they all began to want the same thing. They all started resenting what God had provided for them. So the path to grumbling is a distorted view of history, a distorted view of reality, and a distorted view of God's grace. And lest we think that it only happens to Israel it's very, easy, to have, it's very easy, easy for it to happen to us. Remember that man or that woman that God blessed you with in the early days? How you were thanking God because he provided you with such this wonderful spouse, and then after five years, it's like, well, you start taking that spouse for granted, and then after 10 years, maybe you want someone else to take your spouse. <laughs> you know how that works? Hopefully it's not your case. It's those other people that deal with that. It happens to us. What about that, that song, Amazing Grace? How many? I don't count how many times you've sung that. Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But is grace still amazing to us? Or have we kind of gotten so used to reading in the letters, Grace and Peace Be Unto You. Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Grace, Brethren Church. Grace this, grace that. We say grace so much that all of a sudden, it's now become expected. And maybe as we live a life of grace, we start yearning for those old days with our old crowd that had more fun than the crowd that we're hanging with now. Then we begin to sound like the Israelites. So that's the path that we can take. Let's look at some of the problems that happen as a result of grumbling. Looking at what was true of, of Israel's life. The first one and the most serious is that when you start grumbling because of what God has, when you start grumbling in the midst of what God has given you, your relationship with God is necessarily strained. In fact, out of this whole problem, Israel said, "We remember Egypt and we want what was, we want the food that was there." But look again at God's assessment of what Israel was really saying. Look again at chapter eleven, verse twenty. The second half of that chapter. He says, I'm going to give you more meat than you'll ever think that you could eat, and you're going to get tired of it. If you think this man is loathsome, wait till you try this meat for a whole month. Because you despised the Lord who is among you. See, the real problem isn't that they wanted garlicky food. The real problem was they were despising what God has done for them, and they were despising the very God themselves. In another translation, he says, you've rejected your God and you say why did we ever get out of Egypt? The children of Israel were saying in effect Yahweh we don't want you we would have rather stayed in Egypt if, this is, if we have to go through this wilderness business or teleport us from Egypt to the promised land but this wilderness stuff that's not what we signed up for. If the God that we serve is going to put us through the wilderness forget it let's reboot and just take our time in Egypt. Grumbling teaches us to distrust God and it denies the goodness of God that even in difficult situations, God can do something that that God is loving and compassionate and can still make something good out of difficult places. That was one of the tests of the wilderness. And time and time and time and time again, Israel failed the test. Oh, they had their moments, but they went back and they failed. And we have an opportunity to follow their positive example or their negative example. The relationships with others are strained when we start grumbling. When you start complaining about somebody, it's certainly not going to help you with, uh, with your relationship with them. But also, when you start grumbling, you're looking for a, a, a source to vent your problems. With Israel, they were were complaining about Moses. Moses, you find us something. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? You find us meat to eat. Moses, you're the source of our problem. Well, really, was Moses their problem? No, they had to look a little closer to that. Look in the mirror and they can see where their problem was. But the grumbling made them force or or, uh, place their problem onto Moses. It leads us to trying to blame other people for our own discontent. Well, if you didn't bring me here, then this wouldn't have happened. If you didn't buy this, then we wouldn't have this situation. If you didn't do this, then I wouldn't have this need right now. And we start looking at what other people have done to us. And that's what happened with Israel. Moses, you got us into this situation. God, we don't don't like what's happening. And another problem of grumbling is it's contagious. Have you, have you as a person, I'm sure you don't grumble very much, but if you go around people that are grumbling or talking about something, they're unhappy about something, and they just start doing that, doesn't it start to, to catch, catch on to you? Isn't it something that if you're around a bunch of complainers and, and grumblers, that you start doing it yourself? See, what's sad is when we look in, this chap, in chapter 11, Moses gets afflicted, by the the virus of grumbling. Remember what the people were saying? It's better that we would have died in Egypt than that we have to live through this. Well, now, what does Moses say? This is sad. It's kind of funny the way he says this, but it still is sad in verse 15 of chapter 11. See, Moses has these really great conversations with God then God patches him up and then Moses goes on and leads and then he has another conversation with God and God has to patch him up and, and get him ready to lead these people again. But what he says in verse 15 sounds a lot like Israel. If you're going to treat me like this, just kill me now. And you, and you can almost, I'm saying it jokingly and I don't know whether Moses is like pleading or whatever, but I'm, I imagine it sounds, sounds like maybe it's the kind of things that we, were, we would say, wouldn't it? If I have to go through this, just kill me. I don't want to go through it. And Moses is saying that to God, and he sounds a lot like Israel. If we're going to go through the wilderness, ah, we should have just died back then in Egypt. See, it's contagious. When you grumble and when you complain, it's going to catch on to other people, and they turn into grumblers and complainers. You can't be around it without it affecting you, without it, without it bothering you, or without catching on. One of the words that is translated grumble in here is... Uh, in, in English, is murmur. Murmur is one of those great words that actually sounds like what it is. So in fact, we're going, to, we're going to try it. We'll do an experiment here to hear what a bunch of people murmuring sounds like. So when I count to three, I want all of you just to say murmur several times. One, two, three. Murmur. Wow. Was, okay. <laughs> but you have to say it. But remember, it was the whole camp of the Israelites. We're, we're only what, like, what, you know, more, you know, 100 or so here. 600,000 people. I don't know if every single one of them did it. But let's try this a little, a little louder. One, two, three. It even sounds like that, doesn't it? And you can see how it would grate on you. It would get on your nerves. Or you'd start doing it yourself after a while. It's contagious. And it's unhealthy. Another problem of grumbling is it leads to a lesson, and I'm putting that in quotes also, a lesson from God. Because God is going to teach one to be thankful for what they have. And in both chapter 11 and chapter 21, God provides a lesson. And he says, you want meat? Oh, I'll give you meat. And you're going to wish that you didn't have it. I'm going to give you exactly what you ask for. In fact, in, 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 the, in the Psalms, the psalmist recounts this episode and says, God granted them their request, but sent leanness to their souls you're going to find out what you're going to get what you want and you're not going to like it. So he does it here and then he's going to give them another lesson that we'll, uh, we'll focus in on toward the end. Another problem with grumbling is that it leads to rebellion because if you say I don't want God you have to fill that with something else. If you say I don't want Moses' leadership you have to fill that with something else. And even in the very next chapter we're going to find out that there's Division right from Moses' own family when Miriam and Aaron themselves are also going to reject Moses' leadership. And it leads just in general to dissatisfaction with life because if you're not happy until you get fill in the blank, once you get fill in the blank, it still isn't going to satisfy you. God gave them meat. It doesn't really satisfy them because their ultimate need was not for a thing, but their ultimate need was for a proper attitude toward God and toward his grace to them. I keep talking about them, 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 but again, transfer it to us, 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 because sometimes we get the grumblies even in the midst of all of God's graciousness to us. So with that in mind, what can we learn from Israel's mistakes in the wilderness that will help protect us against grumbling well first is take time to remember God's goodness when things are going well and to have some kind of a, of a memorial or have some kind of a remembrance of all the good things that God has done see what did Israel say they remember they said we remember what in verse 5 what did they remember the fish and all that stuff where in Egypt so what was constantly going on what were they, what were they remembering what were they playing with in their mind those good old days in Egypt, but instead we can constantly play in our mind the good new days of what God has done for us and the blessings that God has provided, to focus and feed on them, to feed on God's daily graciousness and goodness. Because once we start saying, you know, I really wish I had, what we're doing is denying the good that God is doing for us today. We have to know the symptoms, know the problems that we can run into, that grumbling is something that affects all of us. We can't say, well, those people in Israel, they were just unfaithful. And other people today, they're just ungrateful. But me, I have no problem with grumbling. Well, I I think that we can see, honestly, that all of us have that problem with grumbling. Really, one of the reasons that I chose this passage isn't because I'm specifically thinking of one or two people in here, or a problem of of Fellowship Bible Church, that this is a church of grumblers and complainers, I really don't know that that is the case, and I doubt that it is. But I know that I have a problem with grumbling and contentment. I know that it's easy for me to start focusing on the things that are not right. You know, we're missionaries to Nigeria. If I wanted to grumble and complain about things that aren't right, All I have to do is wait about an hour or two after I wake up in the morning and I can find three things to grumble about living in Nigeria. I can also do that here. I can do that everywhere because I'm really good at grumbling. But I need to know that that's a problem so that I can head it off at the pass. To know that we're all prone to wander. One of the uh, the, uh, verses that we can sing or one of the, the hymns that we sing is, come thou found of every blessing. In verse 3, O oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're all prone to wander. And we're all prone to grumbling. And I think we deceive ourselves if we uh, consider our, if we consider us ourselves beyond that. We need to pray for God to take away the right thing. Here's where I'd like you, uh, we're going to end up in this chapter. Turn to, back to Numbers chapter 21. Let's see how the second generation's grumbling ended. Pay attention to what Israel asks for in prayer. So again, they were complaining. They are going to die in the wilderness. There's no food. That's not true. There's no water. That's not true. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Well, the first part's true, but the, the bread certainly wasn't worthless. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray, the, pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, or a bronze serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and it was so. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when they looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What did the people ask of Moses? Take away what? Take away The people said, take away what? The snakes. Was that really their problem? The problem, they should have, what they should have prayed for is, take away our attitudes. Take away this ungrateful heart. Okay, the immediate need was the snakes at that point because they're slithering around camp and they're, they're doing all kinds of stuff there. But they were looking at the, the result of their actions and not really getting down to the heart level issue of taking away my bad attitude. And isn't that how we react sometimes? We, we want to take away the circumstance, but we don't want to take away the, the, the cause of the circumstance. We also have to learn to be truly thankful and content. Contentment is a problem that we've been dealing with ever since the Garden of Eden when, when Satan was able to tempt Eve by saying, here's something that you don't have that you really want. And we've been dealing with problems of contentment ever since. There's a, a man that wrote in, in the mid-1600s, a man named Jeremiah Burroughs, and he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's really a, it's a worthwhile book to read. It's not easy reading, but it's, it's dense, meaning there's like something to, to consider on every page, almost every, every paragraph. And his suggestion was that contentment? Need, to be truly content we learn, we need to learn to subtract and not add to our life. See, what my problem was as a kid and I think what my problem is now as an adult is that I think I need to add something to my life to make it complete or to be content. If I add this, I will be content. But what he was saying was we need to learn to subtract in order to be content. He says that a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. That is his way of contentment and it is a way that the world has no skill in. It is not so much by adding to what we would have or to what he has, not by, it is not so much by adding to what he would have or to what he has, not by adding more to his condition, but rather by subtracting from his desires so as to make his desires and his circumstances even and equal. In other words, we need to learn to do with less stuff. To put it in in a contemporary understanding. Israel, the children of Israel, didn't need to add meat to their diet. They needed to subtract the craving for meat from their diet. Not that there's anything wrong with meat or anything wrong with a certain type of food, but what they were doing is trying to add something that God was not intending to give them. There's nothing wrong with a craving, but there's something wrong if we think that that craving is what it's going to take in order to make our lives complete. And we've, all, I mean, we, we've had cravings, and we know what it's like to want things, but as Burroughs says in that short paragraph, it's not the way the world thinks. The world says, you need more stuff. So we're, we have credit cards that allow us to buy more stuff, and we have advertisements on television that says, we need more stuff. And if, if any of you watch VeggieTales, or your kids watch veg, VeggieTales, what was, what was Madame Blueberry's thing that she wanted to live next to and get? Stuff Mart. Because we need stuff. Whether we want it or not, we need it. Don't we? Well, maybe not. And maybe our problem isn't that we need to add more, but we need to subtract from our lives what we think we need. As we were listening to the radio the other day on, on WTOP, there was a commercial that came across the airwaves. And the the line that caught my attention was, saving money will never make you rich. And I, I think I know their intention. They wanted you to invest somewhere. I don't think they're talking about buying stuff, but more like, you know, holding your money will not make you rich. But what's the implication? You need to be rich. And if you're rich, you can get more stuff. And if you get more stuff, you'll be happy. But that's not the way it works. If you get more stuff, that will just make you want more stuff. And that's not what the advertisers will tell you. Israel, in chapter 11, and chapter 21 of Numbers, needed more stuff to make their lives content. What they needed to do was take away their craving. We need to consider that the world's values and morals and accomplishments are dead to me. That it has nothing of eternal value to offer. The world does have something to offer. But it's not of eternal value. Israel was focused on what Egypt had to offer. Free food. Well, it was only free because they were slaves. And they didn't have any money to buy with it anyway. It had a place to live. Well, it didn't matter that the place to live was right next to the mud pits where they had to make bricks. So the world... Egypt, the world, it has something to offer, but really it's nothing that we want if we look at it realistically. And we need to get to the point in our lives where Israel did not get to. We need to get to the point in our lives where the world has nothing for me. And we need to rely on God's patience and long suffering that He knows what we're made of. He knows our frame that we're but dust. He knows that we're frail and that we're prone to wander. And to hide that from him is to miss the ability to get a release from our grumbling. So in conclusion then, I want to, look, uh, I want to uh, just focus on the end of the, that passage in chapter 21 that we read. The solution to the fiery serpent was for Moses to put a, a snake, a, a, a bronze snake, on a pole and lift it up high enough so that people around the camp, if they were bitten by a snake, would look to that, not go to, the, not go to the doctor, not try their own medicine, but if they were bitten by one of these snakes that God is judging Israel by, they would be healed. And I want to expand that into the healing of not just the physical healing of the snake bite, but it was also a, an act of faith on the part of the Israelites. To not seek a, a, a physical or, or medical means of, doing, uh, of taking care of their problem, but to say, I'm going to look to God in faith that I'm going to be healed. It was like a, a, a reset for them. Now I'm going to focus on God and on faith in God. You, you hear what I'm saying on that? That the bronze snake was more than just a physical healing. But it also did a spiritual healing in their lives as it helped bolster their faith. And that's the same way that, or that's the same answer for us to get out of the grumblies is to when we find ourselves in that position to figuratively look at the the provision of God and not focus on what we think we need in order to be content. Jesus would use the same story later on in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. And he was trying to explain his mission and trying to explain how he would, uh, how, how God would make provision for the world and said, just like Moses raised up this snake, this bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. And when people look on him, they will live. So what Jesus is saying is, you know, the problem isn't really the snakes. The problem is, your unbelief and rebellion. The problem isn't what's biting you now. The problem is what caused you to be bitten. So Jesus is saying, all of you are rebels. All of you have problems with unbelief. All of you are people that are grumbling against God and want another God. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, and to all those who would be saved, look to me. As, as the snake was lifted up, Jesus was lifted up on the cross saying, look to me and and in faith, and you will be saved, you will live. That's if you have not had a relationship with Jesus. He says, look to me and be saved. Just like the people believed and were delivered from their snake bite, believe and be delivered from your sin. But he's also saying to us that are already in a relationship with him, look to me. If you find yourself grumbling, if you find yourself those people that would have been bitten in the wilderness if you find yourself one of those people that would have had those serpents around your tent, look to me and renew your belief. Renew your commitment to faith in God. Each one of us needs to do a checkup and to see where we are, whether we're following the path of Israel for good or whether we're following the path of Israel for bad, meaning that we're either following their example to stay away from, or following their example and walking down the same path where we're going to endure God's lessons on what it means to be fully devoted and committed to Him. So may God help us to do these things because we can only do it through the power of Christ.